Section 26 of Open the Door. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lena Emsley. Open the Door by Catherine Carswell. Book 3, Chapter 2, Part 1. 1. But nine months passed. Nine months, including Christmas and Easter holidays, spent as usual by Joanna in Scotland, and Julie seemed no nearer to the carrying out of her decision. Whether there was anything in the various practical excuses for delay periodically alleged by Julie in further letters and talks, whether she did not as yet, after all, feel perfectly sure of heavenly guidance, or whether she was simply not equal to the uprooting, Joanna did not know. At intervals she continued to urge her mother's coming, but now that the summer holiday was again at hand, and nothing in the situation had changed, she had begun once more to accept her freedom as a permanent condition. Neither had Lewis afforded her any further, or at least any definite occasion of testing, such as she had prepared herself for on that November evening. On the morning after his daughter-in-law's unexpected arrival, he had set aside all family claims, and had gone with Joanna down into Surrey for a long, blissful day's walking. They had climbed up, down, and about Leith Hill, and had discovered a solitary inn with a wide triangular common to itself, and Lewis had been at once more winning and more serious with her than ever before. Since then, she had perfectly accommodated herself, or so she thought, to the inevitable difficulties of their situation. She had anyhow grown used to them, and against them in the balance she could place a steady progress in her work. This much was certain. Under the combined discipline and excitement of her life, her technical accomplishment increased. It was a brazen, stifling Sunday afternoon in August, the day before bank holiday. Lewis had left town the morning before. Joanna did not start for Glasgow until the Tuesday morning. As usual, with London bereft of her lover, she found a blankness in the air. Everything seemed empty and echoing. But it was not wholly unpleasant. She liked to miss him. They had parted firmly, almost happily. Her mind was already set forward upon her holiday, badly needed. And beyond her holiday, upon the next coming together. Moreover, without any doubt, there was a sense of relief in the knowledge that she was free, to herself alone for that day and the next, that she could come and go from the house without any fear of missing some call or telephone message from Lewis. While he was in town, it was a fear that never quite left her. In spirit, therefore, Joanna inhabited a kind of limbo, to which she had long since become accustomed on these thresholds of holiday. But in the flesh, this afternoon at three o'clock, she sat with the moons on their roof-garden. At the moment, her head on one side, and only the absorbed curve of her lips showing beneath the drooping brim of her hat, she was making a birthday present for Ollie Garland. Some days before, she had black lacquered a small wooden workbox, and now that the surface was hardened, she was painting a bright, impossible bird on the lid and little gay-coloured flowers on the sides. I do hope Ollie will like it, she exclaimed happily not speaking to anyone in particular. What sort of bird is it supposed to be? asked Trissy Moon, 
lifting her heated face and pushing back a fallen loop of her hair with her forearm. In the other earthy hand she clutched a trowel, and had been working this last hour at her nasturtions with penal energy. When Trissy was gardening, one had to wonder what it was that she was so fiercely punishing in herself, or for what it was in another that she thus made expiation. Or was it merely some spite against life, which she was confusedly wreaking upon the earth? Her eyes, with the bruised shadows beneath them, were burning. Her pallid forehead glistened with sweat. Her mouth was set in lines of pain. She was the only one on the roof garden not at peace. Mr. Moon sat reading on a canvas chair. Edvina was asleep in her carriage, with a dark parasol stuck through the wickerwork to keep the glare of the sky from her upturned face, and Roddy, squatting on the leads, was placidly involved in a network of railway lines. Joanna gave a little laugh in reply to Trissy's peremptory demand. I'm not sure, she admitted. I'm making it up as I go. I thought a phoenix, perhaps? Edwin Moon looked over his spectacles and his British medical journal at the box in question. I don't think it's a phoenix, no, he observed unemphatically, and in the colourless tone of your true scholar, he proceeded to describe that mythological bird. Joanna gave him an interested glance. Rarely would her landlord himself initiate any learned conversation, but while others talked loosely of this or that, it was astonishing how often apt or curious information was furnished in his mild voice. What about a bird of paradise, then? asked Joanna. I think I'd like it to be a bird of paradise. Mr. Moon seemed to give this his approval. And the less like the real thing, the better, he suggested, with the ghost of a twinkle in his quenched blue eyes. You know, of course, he went on, that there is a legendary bird of paradise as well as the one they kill for women's hats. Give little Lolly the myth. But Joanna knew nothing of the legend. Yes, Mr. Moon told her, as he picked up his journal again. According to the old zoologists, this kind of bird was irresistibly attracted by the nutmegs strewn on the floors of certain island forests, and it came down in flocks and devoured the spice till it was drunk. While it was drunk, its legs were eaten off by ants, so that afterwards it had to always live in the air. Having no legs, it couldn't alight, even to sleep, and was seen continually on the wing. Hence, bird of paradise. Joanna had stopped her painting to listen. What a sad bird, she exclaimed. I shan't tell Ollie that story. But to her own secret heart, she added, That bird is like me. With her fine sable hair brush, she put a scarlet feather, a high, delicate loop of scarlet, into her bird's tail. Then she put a sheer, sweeping blue one, then one that cascaded pure lemon yellow, and she held the box away, drawing back her head the better to appreciate her work. How well these clear colours were shrilled out upon the black. She had never succeeded with lacquer half so well before. Now I have the trick, she declared. I'd love to do your tray for you, Trissy, and that old pencil case of Roddy's. I feel I could paint every bit of wood in the house. A gentle consciousness of pleasure came to her there on the roof garden, and she loved her quiet companions. 
These moons were her friends. What other friends had she made in London these fourteen months? In Georgie's world she was not at home. She was joyless in Irene's, and despite common interests, she had made no intimates in the Chelsea studios. In all these quarters, she had persevered chiefly because she was afraid, because she dared not lose superficial touch with her fellows, because she feared that the strangeness of her life might react in some monstrous external strangeness. But here, with the moons, she was able to feel simply human, free and at her ease. She believed that both Trissy and Edwin had long ago guessed her secret, and that they understood. They were themselves sorrowful, outcast people, and therefore must surely be kind. Joanna's meditation was interrupted at this point by an exclamation of annoyance which came from Trissy. For some time past, neglecting her gardening, she had been peering through the trellis, apparently observing with apprehension the uncertain movements of a stranger in the court below. It is a visitor for us, she announced in despair, and as she spoke the knocker sounded upon the front door. Who can it be? You must go, Edwin. My hands aren't fit to be seen. It's probably someone for you. I don't expect anyone, anyhow, said Joanna peacefully, and filling her brush with bright orange pigment, she proceeded to block in an assertion upon a blank side of Ollie's box. Mr. Moon, having gone obediently downstairs, returned the next minute. Someone to see Mrs. Rasponi, he informed them. I've taken him up, and he sat down again to his reading. As Joanna, in a little confusion, laid aside her paints, murmuring the while that she wondered who on earth it could be, a gleam of pure malice flashed from Trissy's eyes. It isn't Mr. Pender, she volunteered in a low, acrimonious voice, and she dug her trowel passionately into a tub of fresh mould. It's a young man, dark, seemed not to know his way. Like a fury, she began tying up the long, helpless trails of her creepers with pieces of bast, tweaked viciously from a sheaf which she was holding between her compressed lips. But Joanna was too much absorbed in her own speculations to be more than dimly aware of the other woman's malevolence, and she passed unscathed into the house. 2. As she entered the archway room, her visitor, it was Lawrence Urquhart, turned quickly from the window to meet her. He looked more self-possessed than she remembered him, and so well that when they had shaken hands for want of anything better to say, she remarked upon it. He admitted that he was quite well. How was she? Joanna was quite well too, but as she assured him of this, she did not meet his eyes, and when he admired her room, she set rather hastily about displaying her possessions. That was her Italian mirror. These, her mauve and gold luster teacups, picked up at Dorking. Here was her empire coffee-pot. Wasn't it a beauty? And there by the window was the brass-clamped sea-chest she had got for a few shillings one wet day in an open-air market. It was their first meeting since the last unhappy ride together more than a year ago. But in the interval, Joanna had once accidentally had a glimpse of Lawrence unknown to him. It had been on a night when she was leaving a theatre with Lewis. Lawrence, with a friend, another young man, had been in the crowd, and the unexpected sight of his unconscious face 
had affected her so oddly that she had not pointed him out to Lewis. Why was it, she had asked herself, that seeing Lawrence's features anew after absence was like being confronted suddenly by some vital memory of childhood? He was only an acquaintance of her adult years. Why then should his eyes recall so strongly the very look of the pools in the burn at Duntarvi? But Lawrence was not yet living in London. He told her this as if it were the apology for his visit. He was here only for the bank holiday, to make quite sure of a certain berth in Fleet Street. Yes, he was leaving Oxford. No more work for him there after September, and Joanna must know what a sad, untidy, waste-papery sort of place London was of a Sunday afternoon. He agreed with her that Glasgow was fifty times worse in the same circumstances. Still, one felt even more left to oneself in London. At least he did. So he had taken a walk through the green park, and being then so near, had thought to look her up. Carl had given him the address, but he had hardly expected to find her in town. He told her that outside this two days' run to London, he was not having a holiday this year. She had begun to pour tea from the Empire coffee-pot into one of the mauve and gilt cups, but now she paused with questioning eyes upon him. All the time she had been wondering obscurely wherein he was changed. It seemed that Oxford had done for him what she believed London had done for her. How had it come about in his case? You look to me as if you had just returned from a holiday, she said, with just a thread of vexation in her voice. I never saw you look better. And she went on with her tea-making. It's more than I can say of you, he replied quietly. Taken off her guard, Joanna looked up quickly and had to meet his scrutiny. To her dismay, she felt the blood rise hot in her face. I expect I need my holiday, she said, handing the cup to him less deftly than was her wont. He had moved from his seat to take it, and now stood close by her, looking down at her. But you needn't be so disagreeable about it, she added harshly, fighting him off though she was glad then to see him turn away in distress, it was she that presently harked back to the subject. What makes you say I look such a fright? She could not resist questioning him. Lawrence protested that he had said no such thing. It sounded like that. No, you look... The young man frowned and hesitated, but now Joanna had seen from his eyes that he found her beautiful. Yes? Go on she insisted. Last night at the Colosseum, I saw a juggler, he began. He was keeping a dozen plates in the air at once, but it was his face I watched. He wasn't exactly anxious, he knew his job brilliantly. Still, it was taking him all his time and every ounce of his strength to do it and keep a calm front. Joanna waited, but it seemed that Lawrence was finished. And... I look like him? she asked, keeping tight hold of herself. She was seething with anger. As I see you, persisted Lawrence bravely. I'm very sorry. She sat, biting her lower lip, which would miserably tremble. Then a single heavy tear slid out of one eye and ran with surprising momentum down her cheek and onto her lap. She kept perfectly still, 
As it was the far-away cheek from Lawrence, and she was sitting with her back to the light, she hoped he would not notice. But almost immediately, a second tear, scalding and vexatious, pushed itself over the lower lid of the other eye. She sprang up and made for the window. Why, are you so horrid? She just managed to articulate. And then, all in one gasping breath, Can't you see I'm tired? I've been overworking. I need a holiday. If now she expected a penitent to prostrate Lawrence, she was mistaken. He sat stark still in his place and did not say a word. She recovered all the more quickly for his immobility and turned herself about again with a face suffused. I wonder. She could almost smile, though her voice was still full of treacherous quavers. I wonder why I always behave like an idiot when I'm with you. Because I'm an idiot myself, was Lawrence's sour rejoinder, and though they both knew better, this helped to restore their calm. Listen, she began presently, as she helped herself to more tea. I saw you at the theatre one night, and, she added with tremulous mischief, you were not by yourself. To her gratification, Lawrence looked at her quite startled. When was that? One Saturday night in summer? Let me see now. He considered warily. Which theatre? Daly's. Ah, Daly's. She could feel him hiding his relief. He remembered now. He had come up with a man. Martin, his name was. A very entertaining fellow. Not unlike Carl Nilsson in some ways. He would like Joanna to have met Martin. And what had she thought of the piece? Why had she not spoken to them? he asked. Joanna explained some of the circumstances. It had been, she said, in the vestibule crush, struggling for cabs on a night suddenly turned to rain, as he might remember. And then something forced her to add, I was with Louis Pender. But on this, Lawrence made no comment. Soon they spoke of other things. She put some vague questions about Oxford, and was struck by his detached and critical attitude. Here surely was another sign of change in him. In Glasgow, he had been in some awe of the very name. I've learned one thing here, anyhow, he told her. I've learned to shudder at the thought of what I should have become with a tolerably successful academic career. I was shifted out of that, and a good job too though he did not actually add in words, I owe it to you, Joanna felt herself both implicated and exonerated. She asked him what his new choice was to be. Not journalism, surely, she hazarded. Lawrence replied, looking at her and perceiving a certain repugnance in her face. That journalism it was, for the time at least. He had got a newspaper job of sorts, jumped at it indeed, because that would bring him to London and because he could go on reading for the bar at the same time. What it was all to come to, he himself did not yet know. He only knew that he wanted to be in the stream of things. And Professor's aunt? asked Joanna. Not in the way I mean, he replied. They are all fenced in and sheltered. A few of them keep up the pretense that it isn't so. But it is. It has got to be. So they talked on for a while sticking cautiously to generalities, till Lawrence sprang up as if he had quite suddenly recollected an engagement elsewhere. 
As he said goodbye, he asked Joanna if she would go with him next day for a glimpse of Hampstead Heath. He had always wanted to see it on a bank holiday. After a moment's hesitation, she agreed. She always hated the blank day before a journey, and Lewis was out of town. We might have another ride together, this time on wooden steeds, suggested Lawrence. 3. But the walk on Monday was no pleasure to Joanna. Though she had been well disposed toward Lawrence at parting, and in her afterthoughts of him, the next meeting found her weary and hostile. She would like to have shut her ears to whatever he said, and the blaring, glaring, untidy heath had none of the charm she had found there at the Whitsuntide holiday when Lewis had been her companion. The vile, raucous voices were an affront, and the ugly laughter. She loathed the reeking faces and the horseplay. She refused, after all, to ride on the merry-go-round, refused to have tea anywhere but at home. It was all hateful to her. Some relief came with the escape back to her rooms, though Chapel Court itself was noisy enough. She had thought to shake Lawrence off at the street door and go up alone. Surely he must feel as she did. What a failure the afternoon had been. Then why had he not the sense to leave her? But no, he stuck like a burr and seemed oblivious to the languor of her invitation. Still, things were better in the quiet interior, and there would be some comfort in tea sipped behind the closed shutters. Here, over the archway, one was safe, and the cool, untouched breeze crept in at the sides of the curtains. Leaving Lawrence on their entrance, Joanna ran to her bedroom and threw off her hot and dusty outer clothes. Her thin dresses were already packed, so she had nothing to put on, saving one of the Holland smocks she wore for working. But no garment she had was more becoming to her, a fact which had more than once been pointed out by Lewis. Assuredly, in the cool, pleated linen, when she had laved her face and doubled up her hair anew, she felt a different creature. The young man gave a little start of joy as she came into the sitting-room, but his only spoken comment was that she looked nice and cool. For a while they talked of the heat. Then, You know what I said yesterday? questioned Lawrence abruptly. That about having no more use for the backwaters. Yes, Joanna remembered. It was you helped me to it, he said quietly, only his breathing playing him false. I wanted to tell you that. You helped so tremendously. You have always stood for the real world, which I would have hidden from if I could. Joanna wondered in all honesty how this could be. I've always been in such a dream myself, she declared, till quite lately. Perhaps, he winced a little. I don't know about lately, but that first evening at Mrs. Lovett's house at dinner. You seemed a different person from the one at old Celebrini's class. You had got away really away, didn't belong any more to Glasgow. You hadn't been just travelling or sightseeing like the others. How I admired the way you had escaped. It was something I needed so badly, and had so little courage for. Couldn't we start being friends from now? He ended abruptly. We might, she allowed, but she hesitated. 
You seem to grudge it. His voice was sharp. If you knew how I need, what happiness it would mean to me. That's exactly it, Joanna interrupted him quickly. I do believe we might be friends, if only it weren't a thing you thought you needed to make you happy. Don't you see? No, I don't think I do see. He was taken aback. I mean, surely happiness has to be in ourselves, if it is to be any use at all. I've thought such a lot about this lately, said she with growing eagerness. If your happiness is in the hands of other people, or of any circumstances whatever, it is really only misery. If you are happy in yourself now, it would be all right. We could be friends and get pleasure out of it. Otherwise, I don't see the good. Lawrence pondered this resentfully. There was too much truth in what Joanna had said for him to scout it on the instant. Had he not all his life gone seeking happiness outside himself? It came to him now, almost with the force of a discovery. And yet it was a lie. What a lie it was that this woman he loved now so plausibly asked him to share. He himself had lied when he had said her friendship would make him happy. He did not expect happiness from it. He needed what he could get of her. That was all. Didn't even want it. Needed it. And he cared not what he had to pay for it in wretchedness. And just because he needed it, she wasn't playing fair. No, she wasn't. But he would have to share her lie, for he feared above all things to lose his chance of seeing her again. Then, if I come to see you when I'm settled in London, he managed to say with a peculiar smile as he was leaving, it will be because I'm happy in myself. I think you may count on seeing me. All the evening, Joanna was alone. Having finished her packing, she started putting her rooms in order. She existed, submerged beneath the incessant holiday clamour. The revellers were returning to their homes, and by nine o'clock the trampling and shouting in the street had become a steady torture. The only respite came when a band of boys and girls passed along the pavement, singing the musical song of the moment. They sang with the irreproachable ecstatic rhythm of the cockney, their voices twanging out defiantly in parts. Then, in the court below, a piano organ struck up, and people began to dance in front of the bird in hand. It was a taking tune, full of negro syncopations, and Joanna leaned her forehead against the pane of her back window and looked down at the dancers. A fat girl in crushed white muslin with clumsy feet, wriggled her body monotonously to the music, and there was a fixed, mesmeric smile on her gleaming face. Opposite to her, a decrepit man hopped in time, while a baby clutched one of his knees, and Granny, careworn and fit to drop, rocked back and forth in toothless laughter at her old man's antics. In the stream of things, why should one want to be in the stream of things? questioned Joanna in her upper darkness. Yes, it was true that it was terrible to be shut out in undesired solitude. A sudden hatred of this London, so noisily vacant without Lewis, this London with its choice between a festering stream of things 
and an insane and sterile solitude rose in her heart like a corroding poison. And what of that invincible inward happiness of which she had so complacently discoursed to Lawrence but a short while ago? Ah, it was easy to talk. All she knew now was that her whole life stayed suspended till her next meeting with Lewis. End of section 26